You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Hello, everyone. How are you, Dick? It is great to be back. I'm excited to continue teaching with you. Um, I'm going to move this aside because we were getting a lot of feedback. I'll, I'll talk loud. I'm used to teaching without a microphone. So if you can't hear me in the back at any point, just raise your hand or come forward. <laughs> there are seats in the front. Uh, and uh, see, we've got the A row and then the B row and then the C row. So, um, so just let me know and I will be louder if I need to be. Uh, on that note, I will just say this. This is uh, just kind of an aside. It's something I was thinking about. Last week, it felt a little, it felt a little mellow at times. And just in case... Someone gave you the impression that I didn't want some of the feedback that I got in the first week from you. I just want you to know that that that's not the case. I like the feedback. All right. So feel free to interact. Feel free to feel free to bring it. This is this is what we're here for. Uh, We're in part three. So what have we done so far? We've done what are the Gospels? We've done kind of where the Gospels, uh, how they were written, is, it was, was week number two. And now we're into a related subject. It's all related, right? Uh, where did the Gospels come from? Have you ever thought through the process of how what you have in front of you, right on this kind of written, printed page, got to you? And we'll, we'll talk about a lot of that even more next week. But we're going to begin this idea now. In terms of how did the Gospels get written down and what did the Gospel writers use, in a sense, as as their sources? Um, I guess I don't have to stand here because I don't have a microphone anymore. So this is good. Um, All right. So how did they how did they first do it? Well, originally, they just started telling stories about Jesus. Right. Because that's what they did. Jesus was there. He lived. He he told lots of great stories. He, He had wonderful teaching. He was memorable. He died. He raised again. And then once he was gone, the earliest followers of Jesus just kept talking about the things that he did. Right. So they say, do you remember that one time? Right. Do you remember that time where he told that crazy parable where um, everybody didn't want to come to the banquet except the poor people who got invited to the banquet? Oh, I remember that parable. Do you remember that time where we were out and we didn't know what we were going to eat next? And then somehow miraculously food appeared and we all had enough to eat. Do you remember that time where he was walking on the water? Oh, yeah. And then Peter, when you were walking on the water, Peter said, I don't want to talk about that time anymore. Right. I'm going to tell that story. Right. <laughs> and, and that's probably how it went. They, they told stories and they remembered. They remembered about Jesus. And then eventually those stories start to get written down. First is kind of individual, smaller stories. Right. And then those smaller stories start to get collected together into larger groups of stories. And then eventually those groups of stories get written down and become what we would call the Gospels. Right. And so we have this kind of move from the oral tradition into the written tradition. And our question tonight is we're going to camp out kind of right over here in what on this slide is stage three and stage four. How did the Gospels become the Gospels? What were their written sources? What did the writers of the Gospels use to base their Gospels on and to figure things out? Now, again, just a quick review of what we have figured out so far. Remember, in the first week, we looked at the beginning of Luke, the prologue to Luke, and we looked at the end of John, and we looked at this kind of other tradition from a guy named Papias, all about where the Gospels came from. And here are some of the things that we figured out about what the Gospels are. 
The Gospels are good news, right? But not just kind of everyday good news, that there's kind of a political undertone to this, right? That they, they're subversive in a way because they're pushing back on the empire's good news about Caesar being Lord and, uh, and, you know, an heir to Caesar being born and Caesar having victory in battle and saying, no, what's good news is that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus has been born and that we have salvation in him. And so there's, there's a pushback there. We defined the genre of gospel. We talked about this idea that it could be a historical narrative, so things that really happened, but it's a historical narrative that is motivated by theological concerns. In other words, they are, and we'll talk about this right next, they're, they're being selective. They, they, they have a particular story that they want to tell. They have an audience that they're trying to reach. And so they're not just kind of randomly choosing stories about Jesus. They are, they are leading you on a journey. They're painting a picture for you. We talked about that. And we talked about how all the Gospels, at least from what we can tell, are rooted in eyewitness testimony in terms of how they describe themselves. But they're not necessarily all written by eyewitnesses either, right? So we talked about that point. Um, we talked about who the audience is, that it was written, as far as we can tell, for believers, uh, that they each have their own theme and style. We spent a lot of time camping out there last time. We already mentioned they're not selective. Now, here's where we're going to camp out more today. We also talked about, and we learned this from reading this kind of extra thing about Mark and whether Mark was written in order or not, that the Gospels are not necessarily chronological, Right? Or at least they don't care about chronology to the degree that we often care about chronology. And then this last one is especially pertinent for today. We learned from reading the beginning of Luke, and we'll just read that again, that the Gospels are based on other written sources. Or at least that's what Luke tells us, and if we can extrapolate from that, then we can base that on the other ones. So remember how we read the beginning of Luke, and I want to just remind you of that, because this becomes crucial for building on the rest of what we're going to look at. Remember how Luke begins his whole Gospel. And what does he say he did? And what does he say he had access to? And he says, and I underlined it for you, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, and then it kind of goes on a little bit and we get to verse 3, then I too decided, after investigating everything, to write an orderly account. Right? So many others have tried to write an orderly account. And so Luke says, and I'm, and I'm doing one too. And I asked this question on the first day, and I'll ask it again. How many is many? Right? What, is, what number is many? Would you, would you give me two? Yeah, more than two, more than three, four, five, six, somewhere around there. Right? And so that means that Luke has access to many written versions of a Jesus narrative. What do we typically call a written version of a Jesus narrative? A gospel, right? So Luke has access to many gospels. More gospels than apparently we have access to. Especially if, as you'll see in a minute, we're right about where we put Luke in the order of how the gospels are written. We tend to think that Luke is number three out of the four, which means we only know of precisely two gospels that come before Luke, but Luke clearly knows of more than two. Right? And so that's important to keep in mind because what we're going to do today is talk about what are Luke's sources and what are the sources for all of the Gospels? Where did these Gospels come from and what did they use as their written material to tell the Jesus story? Now, um, Tim, in his prayer, prayed that you'd be stretched a little bit today. So, so I just want to point that out, all right? That the, the, the prayer has been made. It's Tim's fault. Today may be a little bit of a stretch for you, so, so bear with me and, and, and run along. 
When we read the Gospels, typically, how do we read the Gospels? We, read, we normally read them in, in a way that I would call vertically. In other words, you read the Gospels from beginning to end, right? So say you're reading through the New Testament, you pick up the Gospel of Matthew, you start at the beginning, you read all the way through Matthew, you say, oh, that was a very nice story, and Jesus seems like a really amazing guy. And then you finish Matthew, you pick up Mark, and you read Mark, and you say, oh, that was strangely uh, similar. I feel like I read some of this before. And you put down Mark and then you read Luke. You say, nah, I know I've read some of this before. Put down Luke and then you read John. You say, that was a little different. And then you're done. Right. And and you read through the Gospels vertically. Now, you need to be careful as you're doing that and kind of know what it is that you're reading. For instance, uh, I had a, uh, a Buddhist friend uh, once who came to me after reading through the four Gospels in a row. And he said, Nick, this Jesus guy is amazing. It only took him four reincarnations to reach nirvana. That was amazing. <laughs> so, so you got to know what you're reading, right? Yeah. But <laughs> that's the typical way of reading the Gospels. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? You, the Gospels should be able to stand on their own, right? And you can read them from beginning to end and let them be their own narrative and tell the story of Jesus that that particular Gospel wants to tell. And that's good. That's a good way to read the Gospels. There's another way to read the Gospels. You can also read the Gospels, what I would call horizontally. Right? So instead of reading them vertically, where you read them from beginning to end, you put them side by side with each other. You take the same story, the same passage that happens in each of the Gospels, depending on how many it happens in, and you compare them to each other. And when you do that, when you start reading the Gospels horizontally instead of vertically, what you discover is that three of the Gospels emerge as being particularly similar to each other. Matthew, Mark, and Luke end up looking... Uh, uncannily the same, and then John kind of is off in his own little world. Um, and we have named those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we've called them something special. We call them the synoptic Gospels, and maybe you've heard that term before. Why do we call them that? You've probably used the word synopsis in your everyday speech to describe like a summary of something, right? I'll give you a synopsis of this movie or something like that. And that's not a bad use of it. It doesn't technically mean summary. If you break it down into its smaller parts, the, the prefix syn, S-Y-N, in Greek, that means together. And then optic you can figure out, right? You go to the optometrist. That means, you know, sight or visual or seen. And so a synopsis is when you can see everything together. You can see it all at once. And this actually becomes a technical term in kind of gospel studies to describe a book or a way of categorizing, organizing the gospels where you lay them out side by side so you can see them all at once and you can see what's the same and what's different about them. You can buy these books. People have done this work for you already. Uh, and I had pictures of two of them before. And, I, and if you want to buy one, I'll, I'll give you some recommendations. Uh, and not only that, but they get into some pretty great detail, right? So they'll leave spaces and wordings and things like that to show you, like, well, there's a word that's here that's not over on this side, and there's a word that there's not on that side. And they'll have kind of references to say, well, this is not quite the same, but look over down in verse 8, and you'll see the other thing. And, and they can become very sophisticated and very complicated, and the result of doing this is you begin to see how the Gospels are the same and how they're different and how perhaps they are related to each other, right? What relationship do the Gospels have? And is it possible that any of the Gospels used each other as sources to write their Gospels? Did the writers of the Gospels have access to one of the other Gospels that we have and use it as a source to write their Gospel? Now, it turns out that this process uh, also works very well when you have cheaters in your classroom and you want to figure out <laughs> whether one of them perhaps copied off of another one. 
And so I have an example of that for you. Uh, some years back, and just for the record, these are not Pepperdine students. These are, these are other students. Nobody here, right? Uh, some years back, I was reading through some assignments, um, rather ironically, an assignment about the synoptic problem, uh, and I should have said that a minute ago, too. So we, we talk about these as the synoptic Gospels. The question of how they relate to each other, this was on the slide, but I didn't say it. The question of how they relate to each other is often then referred to as the synoptic problem. It doesn't have to be a problem. The Germans call it the synoptic question instead, which I kind of like more. But the, but the more typical American way of describing it is the synoptic problem. So this was an assignment that I gave on the synoptic problem. And I was reading through two of my students and I discovered, hey, one of them sounds a little bit like this other one that I just graded. I wonder what's going on here. And so what I did as a good New Testament scholar is I made a synopsis, right? I put them side by side. Now, I've only given you two excerpts here because we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but it's kind of fun to read through the entire assignment. Uh, and I will have my students in class do this. I, I, I print it out for them. And I have them write all over it. And then I ask them, you tell me, did copying occur? And if so, in which direction? Right. That's the more interesting question. Right. So who copied whom? So I'm going to do that with you. I'm going to give you a minute. I want you to read this. It's just two parts. So you don't have all the data in front of you, but read this. And then to, with the person next to you, have a, have a quick discussion answering two questions. Did copying occur? So do you think one student here copied another? And can you figure out the direction? So what, what kind of arguments or criteria would you use to figure out who copied whom? So, so re, take like 30 seconds to read it. And then once you've read it, find the person next to you and have a, a minute conversation about that. All right, take about 20, 30 more seconds to kind of figure that out with your partner. See if you can come to some conclusion. <clears throat> All right. What I am most interested in Bring it back together here. What I am most interested in are the clues that you discovered. All right. So tell me what clues did you discover that either one proved that copying occurred or maybe even gave you a, an intonation, right, a direction of which direction it went. All right. So go ahead. Give me give me your clues and your and your reasoning. So I don't think it was copying. I'm sorry. You uh, <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the argument is blue copied red. Blue sounds more like a paraphrase. Red maybe sounds more original. Copying definitely occurred. All right. Other ideas or additional ideas? Yes. Uh, I think blue copied red because 
Ah, okay. So, so you're saying um, blue sounds less formal or something like that, maybe? Okay, good. All right, other ones here. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, me? Yes. Oh, okay. So um, I thought that blue copied from red because red sounds like an analytical thinker. Ah, okay. And blue sounds like a person who goes by being... <laughs> what, what gave you that impression? I could be wrong, though. <laughs> who writes that in a paper? Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Is there anybody who wants to go the opposite way? Who wants to make a different argument from the other way? Yeah, Billy. Ah, okay. This is important, right? Blue has grammatical errors. And what did you notice with red? Sometimes fixes it. Not always, right? Let's just point out, neither of them is an exemplary student, all right? They're just... This, this is not good writing on either side here. But Billy is making a very important point. There are some places like the there and the then, right, where blue has an error and red doesn't. So the question becomes, is it more likely that you would start with an error and somebody would fix it? Or is it more likely that it would be right and you would introduce errors? And you can make an argument on different, on different sides, but generally people would say it's more likely to start errors that get fixed rather than to introduce errors in. But it depends, right? It depends. Okay, in the back. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, an excellent point if you couldn't hear that, right? So the point was made, is there a third missing source, right? Did they both copy from somebody else? And that is a great point because that's very relevant to the point of the Gospels. Do we not have access to all the information? Now, in this case, I happen to know for a fact that that's not the case, but I have had other cheating scandals where that was the case, where I, where I found the paper from a previous class that my students had used, right? All right. Now, nobody in, in, in New Testament studies in a Christian university can you be effrontery, and yet it happens. Oh, oh. All right. Um, there's something that nobody has pointed out that I really want to make sure that you notice, and, and there's, there's one telltale sign in this that proves almost beyond the shadow of a doubt that at least one of them copied the other. It doesn't tell you which direction it happened, but it almost proves it. All right. Do you think you have it here? Yeah. Yes, the quote. All right. What did you notice about the quote? Um, well, they introduce the same quote and uh-huh. have the same interpretation of it. Uh, that they say that it says the same thing. Right. And, um, but I, I... And, and someone said it. Yeah, there's something wrong with the quote. What... There's an error in the quote, right? So if you read the quote carefully, what does it say? I am the voice of carrying out in the wilderness. <laughs> and maybe you know, you know too well what it said, so you didn't even notice it. But these were not good gospel readers, right? And so they don't know the quote well. So what should it be? I'm the voice of what? Cry. I'm the voice of one who cries out, crying out in the wilderness. So one of them wrote carrying and the other copied that. Because how likely is it that two individuals independently would make the same nonsensical quote, right? Very unlikely. So almost certainly we have copying. Then the question simply becomes which direction, right, do we have copying? All right, do you want to know the answer? 
I never figured it out. I have no, no, just kidding. No, I do know. I do know. Um, I'll tell you this though, if it gives you any humility. Well, let's take a quick vote. All right. So raise your hand if you think blue is original and red copied from blue, which very few people made arguments for. All right. And then raise your hand if you think red is original and, um, and blue copied from red. Did I do that right? All right. Uh, all right. So it looks like maybe half and half here uh, for, for this group. All right. I will tell you this. I got it wrong the first time that I did it. I'm, this, I do this for a living, right? This is like my job. I do synoptic studies, um, and I was so sure going into it, but I have my tactics and my ways of um, interviewing students, right, to, to get the truth out of them. And, uh, and, and I discovered which direction it had, it had gone, uh, and, I, and it turned out that I had it backwards. I, I did not have it right. Blue is original in this case. <laughs> <laughs> and red has copied blue. <laughs> and one of the signs is what Billy pointed out. One of the signs is the, the, the errors that are in blue. Red has fixed many of those. And again, you can make an argument. You can say, well, if these copy and they're not good writers either way, so maybe they're introducing errors. Uh, and I had all my own ideas, which I won't go into. And you, again, you haven't had the whole thing, so there's more here that would give you more clues. That's not the point. The point is that th this is something of a logical exercise, right? That when you look at this, first you have to decide, did copying occur at all? And then you have to decide in what direction it occurred. And you use basically exercises in logic. Is it more likely that so-and-so would introduce this or so-and-so would adapt to this or how would, the, how would it go? And it's all kind of you kind of working in probabilities, right? What is more likely? And that's exactly what the gospel writers do when they start looking at the gospels. Now, again, I've, I've told you, you can look at a synopsis and you can lay out the gospel texts next to each other, but you can go further than that. You can get... You can get pretty serious with this because this is nice and you could start maybe thinking through things. You can also start using colors and you can start underlining or coloring different things to think about relationships. And when you start doing that and start thinking about relationships, here are things that you notice. There are things that all three Gospels have. So in this case, that's blue, right? So blue is what every, all three of these Gospels have. There's some things that only two Gospels have. So in this case, red is what Matthew and Luke share that Mark doesn't have, right? And green is what Mark and Luke share that Matthew doesn't have. And orange, although there's not very much of it, right? But there's a little bit here after me. Uh, orange is what Matthew and Mark have that Luke doesn't have. And when you begin to lay out relationships like this and think through things, you begin to discover that there are some very particular relationships that the Gospels have with each other. And if you're kind of a visual person, and especially if you remember Venn diagrams from like elementary school, this can help you kind of think through the various ways that there can be overlap, right? So there's overlap in that all three have them. There's things that just Matthew and Luke have. There's things that only Matthew and Mark have, only Mark and Luke have. And then, of course, there are things that just the individual Gospels have that nobody has, right? That's unique to those Gospels. On this next slide, I'm going to warn you before I put it up. I'm going to show you some kind of complicated pictures of how scholars lay this stuff out in percentages and other things. <laughs> don't let it overwhelm you and you don't need to understand it all. I'll talk through some of the more important parts. But maybe it'll give you, again, something of a visual to, to think through. Is there a relationship between these Gospels and in what direction perhaps that relationship goes. So let me show you some things here. All right, there's two different pictures that I've got. One, 
Let me point out that there is a great deal of what's often called triple tradition, which means the stuff that all three Gospels have together. Some of this stuff is so close that it's practically verbatim, right? That they have word for word the same thing, sometimes for 10, 20, 30 words at a time. They have the same exact phrasing in Greek. Sometimes it's not just the phrasing that's the same, it's the order of the passages that is the same. So they'll go through a series of events where Jesus goes and does a healing and then a teaching and another healing in a particular city and Mark and Matthew and Luke will follow the exact same order of those events to several events down, right? Things like that begin, began to raise questions with those who were reading the Gospels on this level, reading them horizontally, and began to convince many people that the Gospels are related to each other and in fact, maybe some of the Gospels are using others of the Gospels as sources, that they had access, that one of the Gospels had access to another one and used it as a source for its writing. Now, that may shock you a bit, right? Or maybe make you uneasy a little bit to think, wait a minute, does that, is that okay? Is that, does that undermine the authority or the, or the authenticity of the Gospels? And we'll, we'll get to that question in a second. So don't, that's not a bad question to ask, right? It's a valid one to ask. We'll come back to that in a second. First, let me just kind of give you some ideas of why we think that is. I'm going to give you two illustrations. Then we'll come back to the slide and we'll kind of talk through some of the, some of the data. All right, so how do we, why do we think that? Why do we think that it's possible that some of the Gospels had access to other of the Gospels when they were written, that one of the writers had access to another one of the Gospels? Well, here's one example among others that I could give you. One of them is when there is some kind of narrative aside. So in other words, if you wanted to say, no, that can't be right, because maybe they all just memorized the same oral story, right? They memorized the same oral traditions. These, this was an oral culture. They told the same stories. They were very good at memorizing stories, and all of that's true. And so even though they look like maybe they're using each other as sources, really they've just all independently memorized the same oral source. All right, that's, that's fine. That's a neat idea. That would not go very far to explain when the narrator intrudes inside of a story. Right? Because if the narrator intrudes inside of a story, that's not the kind of thing that would happen in a normal oral telling of a story. That's the kind of thing that would happen in a written story. And you wouldn't expect to see that repeated more than once, right? But here is an example where something like that happens. So this is when Jesus is doing his last teaching in Jerusalem, and he's talking about the eventual destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking about this abomination that causes desolation, or the, de you know, the abominating sacrilege that gets translated different ways. It's a quotation of Daniel. And then there's this funny thing that happens in the Gospel of Mark where we get this kind of narrative aside where it's like Mark kind of jumps into the story and says, hey, pay attention right here. This is really important. And so this is Jesus talking. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What does that mean? Let the reader understand. Did Jesus say that while he was preaching to the people in Jerusalem? That would be a weird thing for Jesus to say, right? Now, there are, there are ways to argue that Jesus said that. There's nothing that's, you know, you can always make arguments in other directions. But on the surface, right, that's, that you, you kind of have to, you have to make weird arguments to make Jesus say that in the middle of this. This sounds like this is Mark talking, right? This is Mark telling us, pay attention right now. Let the reader understand this is an important passage. You should, you should pay attention. You should listen to this. That's all fine and good. Mark's allowed to do that. 
But then we come over to Matthew's parallel version of the same account. And what do you notice, if you've already read ahead, is that Matthew does the very same thing. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, he adds one little thing spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Why would Matthew have the same kind of narratival intrusion as Mark if they're both based on some separate oral testimony or some separate oral tradition that they're both separately memorized and carried down. It's hard to explain. It makes much more sense to say that one of them, we don't know which direction, but one of them had access to the other and that as they're writing this story, they incorporated over this kind of narratival aside, this parenthetical phrase, right? And this is not the only example of that. There are other examples where the narrator interrupts the narrative in exactly the same place in various accounts of the same story in different Gospels. And so there are clues like this that lead those who read the Gospels on a very kind of deep uh, horizontal level to say, okay, something's going on here. Either Matthew had access to Mark, the Gospel, or the writer of Mark had access to Matthew, the Gospel, and, and they had each other as a source. Now, here's one more example uh, of something like this. This, ironically, is that very same quote that we just saw that my poor students couldn't get right. Uh, so when John the Baptist says, right, prepare the way for the Lord, or this is really the text that says it, but it's um, uh, talking about John, make straight paths for him. All three Gospels have that quote verbatim in the very same way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote that in the same way. But what's interesting is if you go back to the Hebrew and the Greek version of that, that they presumably would have had access to, what you discover is it's slightly different. It's not different in any kind of meaning sense. It's not like they changed the meaning. But in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it says, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for our God. It doesn't say for him, it says for our God. I, I don't think there's any big deal in terms of the, you know, it's not like the quote changes its meaning. But isn't it interesting that all three quote it differently in the same way? So either they all three independently made the same choice or, more likely, one of them had access to the other, right? That one of the Gospels had access, one of the Gospel writers had access to one of the other Gospels and used that as its source rather than going back to Isaiah 40. Right? They didn't want to go look it up in their Hebrew scrolls, right? They just wanted to use the one that they had in front of them. So there are things like that that lead uh, many people to conclude that what we have is some kind of relationship. Now, let me say a few more things about that and some things to point out. Again, begin to notice some of these percentages, right? So there is a huge part of each of the Gospels that is made up of stuff that's in all three Gospels. Over three quarters of Mark is also in Luke and Matthew. It's a little bit less for Luke and Matthew. They're much longer Gospels, right? So only about 40% of Luke is also in Mark and Matthew. Only about 45% of Matthew is also in Mark and Luke. But what you're seeing is there's a significant part, right? 40 to 70% of the Gospels that's in all three that they share together. Now, notice a few other things. There are, for instance, um, a little bit that's in Mark and Matthew that isn't in Luke. There's almost nothing that's in Luke and Mark that's not in Matthew. But when you add all of that together, what you discover is how much of his Mark is unique only to Mark? How much only shows up in Mark and doesn't show up anywhere else? It's not very much. Somewhere around 3%. It's hard to put specific numbers on this because it depends on if you're counting words or verses or passages or how you want to do it. But the bigger point is over 90% of Mark 
is found either in Luke or in Matthew or both. Right? So the majority, the vast majority of the Gospel of Mark also shows up in the other two Gospels. Now, let me ask you this. What percentage would you guess of the Gospel of John also shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? In other words, I'll say it this way. How unique, let me ask it this way. How unique is John? Right? So what percentage of John is totally unique to John doesn't show up in Matthew, Mark, or Luke? Throw out a number for me. More than 60. More than 70. 90. About 90%, give or take. 90% of the Gospel of John is unique to the Gospel of John. So think about that contrast, right? That on the one hand, we have 90% of Mark that is not unique to Mark that shows up in Matthew and Luke, whereas we have 90% of John that's totally unique to John that doesn't show up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that tells you maybe kind of the way that it could be in the way that it is, right? That, that leads many scholars to conclude that John did not have access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as John was writing his gospel. That John kind of stands on his own as telling an independent, different story in terms of written sources. Uh, potentially, yeah, right? So, so he, didn't, he didn't have access to the scrolls. We don't know. So you're thinking about John and Patmos writing Revelation. We don't know where the author of the Gospel of John would have written, whether he was still on that island, whether he was on that island all his life or what. But yeah, but, but there are reasons to suspect perhaps that he would be uh, isolated in some way. Now, notice that I didn't say, but I meant to say earlier too. What percentage of, for instance, Matthew is unique to the Gospel of Matthew? There's 20% of Matthew's material that's only in Matthew. There's 35% of Luke that's only in Luke. So Luke and Matthew also have their own kind of major sections that only they have. So it's not like they're always using Mark and getting all the material from Mark. They also have their own stuff too, right? But compared to John, they don't have nearly as much of the same kind of unique stuff. And this is another visual way to think of it. This one's a little bit harder to wrap your mind around, but once you know what it is, you can kind of see it. If you think of this box down here, this box is Mark, basically. So how much of Mark is unique to Mark? And these are by passages. There's about three passages that are unique to Mark, and we'll talk about those in a second. Whereas there are about 95 passages that show up in all three Gospels. There are about 11 passages that show up in Matthew and Mark. There are about six passages that show up in Luke and Mark. And then you can do the same thing for the other boxes. This box right, oops, sorry, right there, this box is Matthew. And then if you do it the other way, this box is Luke. And so you can kind of think of each Gospel as its own separate box. And this tells you something of a proportion, right? And I don't expect you to be able to wrap your mind totally around this um, and it tells you another significant thing. There is a lot that Matthew and Luke share, something close to a quarter of each of their Gospels that they didn't get, that, they did, that Mark does not have, right? That is not found in the Gospel of Mark. So I, I give you all this to kind of establish for you, hopefully in a, in a safe way, although we're doing some stretching here, that scholars generally conclude that there is some relationship between the Gospels. Now, again, we'll come back to this question of, is this okay? Can we do this? How does this uh, affect how we read them? We'll come back to that question. But before we get there, what I want to do... Oh, no, actually, that's where we're going right now. Is this okay? Let's, let's ask that question. Um, it probably makes you feel a little unsettled because you typically imagine the gospel writers either 
kind of independent writing their own thing or kind of um, receiving understanding and, and kind of inspiration from the Holy Spirit and not necessarily sitting. I remember we had this image of, you know, of an angel whispering over Matthew's shoulder, right? And not sitting down and saying, oh, I know what I should do. I should pick up the gospel of, you know, Mark and use that as, as a source. So, so let's ask that question. Is this okay for them to do? And the answer to your question or a way, a way to ask it is, how would the earliest readers of the Gospels have understood them if they knew this process, and, and they probably did. And, and the answer is, they would have been fine with this. That this is, in fact, how literature, generally speaking, was written during this time. This would be a very normal process. A minute ago, we did this exercise, right, with my students, where one clearly copied another. And in our world, we have a word for that, right? We call it plagiarism uh, or cheating. What you have to remember is that their world is very different. They don't cite sources in the first century. They don't have footnotes in the first century. And they don't think on the same level that we think of in terms of the way that we can use or not use other people's material. Their mindset was, hey, if somebody wrote something well, it would be foolish and really arrogant of me to try to rewrite it in a different way. I'm simply going to incorporate what they've written into what I'm writing and that actually makes very good sense to them. That's the normal way of writing for them. And when they do that, they don't feel the need to then say, by the way, I got this one from Mark and I got this one from so-and-so and this guy Thomas over here had this great idea that I threw in there. They don't, they don't feel the need to do that on the level that we feel the need to do that. Yeah, so questions. So doesn't that parallel what the um, Pharisees would do, how Jesus was different because he spoke on his own I, when, when the Gospels describe Jesus as, as speaking with authority, I don't think it necessarily means that he has his own authority that's different than the authority that came, because Jesus really is channeling much of um, the Jewish tradition that came before him. There are some ways of reading what Jesus says that is um, no different than what Moses would have said, for instance. So when the, when the Gospels describe Jesus speaking with authority, I think what they mean more is how compelling his message is and how compelling his arguments are and how authoritative um, he delivers it, and not so much the idea that suddenly he has unique um, teaching that nobody else here, unique sources that nobody else has ever had before. Uh, in fact, the ancient world was very skeptical of, of uniqueness, right? So in our world, we love novelty. We love what is new. In the ancient world, the more authoritative, the, the further back you could prove that you got something from, the more authoritative it was, right? So if you could say, so this is, Jews would do this a lot. They would say, hey, Moses is way older than all of your guys, uh, you Greeks, right? So Moses is more true than Plato because Moses is older, right? We got these ideas long before you did. You stole everything you have that's good from the Jews, right? Is what the Jews would often say. And, and the argument was older is better. And, and it's similar to what's happening here. Yeah. Oh, one more back. Yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking, you know, there's no printers, so, like, how many books of Mark are there? Right? And, yeah. And you know, why not write it down a copy? Because you're going to have to anyway. Yeah, right? So, yeah, this is, remember, and we'll talk about this next week specifically, right? There's no printing press. So the copies of Mark that you have are the copies that you are willing to hand write yourself. Information is scarce, so when you've got it, you use it. Right? You use what's available to you. You don't, you know, reinvent the wheel, so to speak. Right? You don't start from scratch when you've got something really good right there. 
And so again, this, this would have been totally normal to them. And for an early Christian who picks up Matthew, who also knew Mark, would not say, Matthew, you cheater. Like, how, why would you, how could you take this from Mark and not cite him in your footnotes? Right? They'd say, oh, Matthew, great job. You have added some additional material that Mark didn't have. And we have a, a new version of this that gives us better insights. They would love it. Right? This would be very normal to them. All right. So I hand back there and then we should move on. Yeah. 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 So Paul in Colossians, uh, he says to them that they need to re- read the letter to the Laodiceans and then he tells them and also make sure that they read your letter. Uh, and so that at least suggests to us and, and Paul is writing, if you've never thought this through, Paul is writing probably before any of the Gospels ends up being fully written down. So Paul's writing in the 40s to 50s to 60s. Right. And the, the earliest Gospel doesn't get written down as best as we can tell into the late 60s, maybe early 70s. So Paul is suggesting to us that there's some kind of Christian network. They're trading stuff, right? They're, this is the you know, Christian Facebook, right? The earliest uh, social, Christian social media. And, uh, and, they're, and they're trading stuff. I know people don't use Facebook anymore. Christian, uh, what's the, you know, Snapchat, Christian Instagram. There we go, Christian Instagram. Uh, and, and, they, and so they're trading material together. And, and again, so this makes very good sense when you stop and imagine the way that the ancient world worked. It's actually um, very logical that these Gospels would be related to each other. In fact, it's kind of surprising how different John is in that situation then. All right, one more hand I said. And then, yeah. Right. Which is the question that many people ask about John, right? There's a John. How is that? Why are you so different? What you're, the Jesus that you meet in John, if you really read carefully, can often sound very different. We talked about this earlier when we did the different words, right? Jesus and John never tells parables. Jesus and John never talks about the kingdom, right? Or once. Um, why does and so people would ask that question probably a lot more if more of the gospels were so divergent and so and so you're right about that all right now here's what we're going to do so maybe right just go with me for a second maybe we have established that there is some relationship between the gospels right that matthew and mark and luke are verbally related that they had written sources and one of them had access to the other what we haven't figured out yet is what direction that occurred right so who had access to whom although i've hinted at it a few times uh, and so you may have heard it already Who had access to whom? Well, one of the first people to notice this and to propose an answer is an early Christian by the name of Augustine or Augustine sometimes. And Augustine, maybe this gives you some kind of um, extra boost here, right? Augustine, he's writing in the kind of late 300s, early 400s. He's an early Christian who's reading the Gospels carefully and he noticed this and it didn't bother him at all. Right. He understood how ancient writing was done. Right. Uh, writing in his own time is still done. He copied lots of other people in his own writing. Um, and, and so he comes up with a theory and he says, OK, I, here's what I think happened. I think Matthew wrote his gospel first. And then Mark came along and Mark had access to Matthew. And then Luke came along and had access to Mark and Matthew. And that's how we get the gospels. Right. So this is one of the earliest proposals and it's very early. Right. This is 1500 years old or something more than that. 1700 years old that this person is is proposing this. And it makes some sense if you stop and think about it. Right. I mean, the way at least that our current 
layout is Matthew shows up first in the canon. Matthew is by far the favorite gospel of the church, maybe in slight competition with John, but generally speaking, the church loves the gospel of Matthew more than any other gospel. Matthew is a really great bridge from what we call the Old Testament into the New Testament, right? Starts out with a genealogy, which all of you skip, I know, but it sounds very much like the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so so it, it would make some sense to think about Matthew being first. Unfortunately, that probably isn't correct. And you always know that because a person never starts with the answer, right? You always start with something else. So that's probably not right. And I'm going to give you some reasons why that's probably not right. Generally speaking, the people who kind of work on this problem have come to the conclusion that it's much more likely that Mark was written first. Interestingly, right? Because Mark is not the favorite gospel, generally speaking, and and Mark is not always as well read or as as preached from, and yet it appears there's some pretty good evidence to suggest that actually Mark was written first and not Matthew. Let me give you some of the reasons why. Some of them you can go back and forth on. Some of them make pretty good sense. Mark is the shortest gospel. Perhaps it's easier to imagine kind of a short gospel that gets expanded into something longer than someone who comes along and has a long gospel and says, actually, I want to get rid of extra Jesus material and make it really short. Let's not tell more stories about Jesus, right? It's maybe a little harder to imagine that, right? Um, But you could make an argument that someone just wanted to summarize something. Someone found Matthew and said, Matthew is great, but it's long. Let's shorten this up. I've got, you know, a a 40-minute Bible study I got to do. We got to be able to get this thing out of the door, right? So you could kind of imagine that, but generally speaking, it goes the other way. This one is more compelling. You don't hear this in English. But if you read the Gospels in Greek, you can kind of rate their education levels in terms of the writing. Mark has by far the simplest kind of roughest Greek of the three, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark, it's not that he's uneducated, he's writing a Gospel, right? So he's still kind of higher than most people at this time, right? Maybe only 10% or so of the world is literate at this point. So it's not like Mark is uneducated. But when you compare Mark's style and Mark's kind of grammar and Mark's vocabulary to Matthew or to Luke. Matthew and Luke are far more sophisticated writers. Luke especially has some of the most sophisticated Greek in the New Testament. Luke is very well educated. Luke is rhetorically trained. Um, You don't always hear that in English because English tries to kind of level that out for you and make everything sound more or less the same. That's what your English translators are generally trying to do to get the reading at a certain level so that everybody can read it, which is not a bad goal, but you have to understand that's what's happening when you read the Bible. Um, And so you don't hear this, but when you compare them, Luke is more sophisticated than, than Mark. What, which is more likely, which direction is more likely? Is it more likely, and this is kind of what we did in our exercise, right, that you'd have this kind of rough Greek that someone comes along and smooths out and adds wonderful grammar to and new vocabulary words, or is it more likely that you have this kind of beautiful grammar that someone takes and picks apart and then removes some of the words and makes it rougher? It's harder to imagine that. It's not impossible, but it's all kind of a case of probabilities. Now, this one is, uh, we've already mentioned, right, that almost all of Mark is found either in Matthew or in Luke or in both. So in terms of material, you lose almost nothing if Mark is first. In other words, Matthew and Luke have incorporated nearly everything in Mark, and there's only three passages that they don't incorporate. And we'll talk about those three in a second because they're kind of weird, all right? Um, And then maybe harder to wrap your mind around, but also very significant, Mark seems to be kind of this 
common denominator in terms of structure between Matthew and Luke. So if you stick Mark in the middle and you start kind of laying out the order of the gospel passages, what will happen is they'll all be following together. And then suddenly maybe Luke veers off. But when Luke veers off, what happens? Matthew stays with Mark. And then maybe later on, you know, Luke will come in and Matthew will veer off. But then Luke stays with Mark. And what seems to happen is Mark always seems to be like the middle turn, right? If one of them goes off in the other direction, they don't both go off in the other direction together. It's always one of them stays with Mark and one of them goes away and the other stays with Mark and the other goes away while another goes away. And so Mark is always kind of the central figure, which suggests that Mark is the earliest of the three. All right, now let's talk about these three unique passages, right? So there's basically three things that Mark has that none of the other Gospels have, has, and... um, and, and they're a little bit odd in terms of their flavor. One of them is this parable of the seed that's planted and nobody knows how it grows, but suddenly it sprouts up. That's not so bad, but, but it's different. Um, but then the next one is this story where Jesus heals a blind man. You might remember this one. And he spits uh, <laughs> into his eyes, right? And then what does the blind man say? Jesus says, can you see? And he's like, ah, I see, but... They look like, I see people, they look like trees walking around. And Jesus is like, oh, dang it, it didn't work. All right, let's try this again, right? And he does it again, and then the guy sees. Now, theologically, I think Mark is doing something actually very clever there. In fact, that's a Mark and sandwich, right? So remember from last week. So Mark, Mark's actually having a little fun with this. So there's something very deep theologically happening here. But on the surface, what does it look like just happened? It took Jesus two tries to heal somebody, right? How does that make Jesus look in terms of his power? Nah, right? Jesus, he's good, but he's not always perfect, right? Sometimes he has to try a couple times before he can get the, the miracle right. And so you could imagine an early Christian reading that story and saying, I'm not going to follow that guy, right? He says he can heal people, but, but he doesn't always work, right? Um, and so you can imagine why that story might be a little embarrassing, in a sense, for the early church and why they wouldn't want to continue telling that story, even though I think Mark actually has some really deep stuff happening there. And then the last one is maybe the best one. You probably remember this story, right? Because at Jesus's arrest, there's one guy there who apparently was in a rush and only had time to put on his sheet. And so when the authorities come to arrest everybody, they grab him. All they get is the sheet. And what does he do? He runs away buck naked, right? And that poor guy has been immortalized in the gospel ever since. And he only shows up in the gospel of Mark. Now, again, there's something really theologically deep going there. I'll just give you this one as a freebie. Um, What does Jesus say, right, in Mark and all the gospels? If you want to be my disciple, what do you need to do? Give up everything, right, and follow me. What does this guy do? He he gives up everything and runs away. Uh, and so there, I think Mark is even having fun with that. He's, it's a comment on discipleship with this guy. So it's not that Mark doesn't have good reasons for throwing these stories in, but they're not the most obvious good Jesus stories to tell when you've got um, a kind, you know, limited space in the story that you want to tell. So let me give you two scenarios then. All right. Let me help you imagine what process this might have uh, gone through. So let's imagine Mark writes first and Mark produces the gospel that we know and love. But what do you know about Mark? Does Mark have a birth narrative? No. You just start right in the middle of the story. It's suddenly John the Baptist. He appears on the scene. He's preaching. He's teaching. It's like you're supposed to know who he is, even though Mark hasn't told you who he is. Jesus just shows up and you don't really know who Jesus is either, but he gets baptized and then we're on our way. Right. And I think I said this earlier that with Mark, it's like you jump on a moving train and he just kind of pulls you along. Right. And now Mark, all the time, he's telling you all about how authoritative Jesus is and what what great authority he has when he teaches. Right. And yet, if you kind of stop and read Mark, especially if you have a red letter Bible and you look for kind of long passages where Jesus teaches, there's not a lot. There's a good parable chapter. There's kind of a good 
kind of mini apocalypse chapter then when he talks about Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem. But there aren't like long, great teachings of Jesus, despite how authoritative Mark keeps telling you that Jesus is. Right. But what do we have? We've got a great story about Jesus taking two tries to heal a blind man. We've got a great story about a naked man running away. And, and we'll talk about this next week. But it looks like Mark kind of cuts things off at the end and doesn't give you very much of the resurrection. Jesus resurrects, but Mark doesn't tell you very much about it. We'll talk about that next week. So it starts kind of abruptly, ends kind of abruptly, and doesn't have uh, all of the teaching maybe that we would have liked in the middle. So then imagine this, that Matthew comes along, picks up the gospel of Mark and says, oh, Mark, nice job, right? You were the first one among all of us to sit down and do this, and you did a pretty good first try. But my people want a little bit more. For instance, where did Jesus come from? Right? How was he born? Let's add in a birth narrative here. And you keep talking about how authoritative Jesus is, but you don't give us a great kind of overview of his teaching. Let's throw in a sermon. I'll have Jesus standing on the mountain when he gives the sermon. Let's call this the Sermon on the Mount, right? And you've got three chapters, five, six, seven, of just red text, of just Jesus talking, 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 telling everybody what it means to be his follower. Right? And Matthew's filled with uh, four more other giant teaching sections that, if you're imagining in this scenario, he has inserted into the Gospel of Mark. Then he gets to this kind of blind man pass, and he's like, okay, Mark, I see what you're doing there. Maybe it's a comment on the blindness of the disciples, but it's a little awkward, and I don't want to have to explain to my people why it took Jesus two tries to heal this blind man, so we're just going to leave that story out. I don't want to go into that. Right? He gets to the naked man. He says, Mark, I don't even know what you're doing with a naked man. Right? We're, we're leaving this one out. He gets to the end and Mark says, Mark, you, you ended this kind of abruptly. But let's talk more about the resurrection. Jesus appeared to people. He gave a final commission. That stuff needs to be in here. Let's throw that back in. Right? And so Matthew adds. It's very easy to imagine Matthew finding Mark and adding to and kind of extending Mark to get what we would call the Gospel of Matthew. Now, reverse that scenario, all right? Imagine that we have the Gospel of Matthew, and Mark comes along and picks up Matthew and says, oh, Matthew, nice job, right? I really like this Gospel. But you know what? Birth narrative? Nah. Nobody wants to know how Jesus was born. And, oh, Sermon on the Mount? Boring, right? Jesus just talks and talks and talks. Nah, let's get rid of that. But you know what this Gospel is missing? A story about a naked guy, right? We need some naked people in the gospel. And you know what else the story's missing? A, uh, uh, this gospel's missing? A story where Jesus takes two tries to heal somebody. We've got to throw that one back in there. I love that story, right? And, oh, uh, resurrection appearances? Nah, no one needs to know how Jesus resurrected. That's not that important, right? And so you can, you can appreciate how much more sense it makes to imagine Matthew finding Mark and expanding it than it does for, Ma- for Mark to find Matthew and to have to take out what you'd have to take out of Matthew to get what we would call the Gospel of Mark. So that's where many scholars then conclude that Mark is first. Now, there's one last thing I didn't mention, but I'll just throw it out here. Uh, Mark has these great Aramaic phrases, this kind of local color, right? So Jesus, he's um, going to raise a little girl from the dead. And what does he say? Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up, right? Or he's going to heal a deaf and a mute man. And he says, ephaphtha. Right. Be opened. And these are actual Aramaic phrases. They're transliterated into Greek. Only Mark generally has these. Mark and uh, Matthew and Luke get rid of them. 
Um, it's easier, again, to imagine that Matthew and Luke come across this kind of one or two Aramaic phrases and say, this is complicated and confusing. My people don't speak Aramaic. We're not going to do this and get rid of it, rather than Mark coming along and just randomly adding three Aramaic phrases into the gospel, right? So, again, little, it's always exercises in probability, and it's always about which one can you imagine more that makes more sense, and then cumulatively, where does the argument stack up? And generally speaking, it stacks up that, that Mark seems to be first. All right, now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you um, two more ideas about where we go next, but then I'm going to give you one more payoff, right? So why does this matter at all? And then, and then we'll wrap things up. The next question that we would ask, naturally, is, okay, if Mark wrote first, who wrote next, right? And there are two competing theories on that that I'm actually not going to get into, but I'd be happy to discuss more with you if you want to. And I'll, I'll just give you, like, the one-minute version of each. One theory would be the idea that, and this is kind of the simpler one, after Mark writes, then Matthew has access to Mark, and then Luke has access to Matthew and to Mark. That's a very simple theory. It's kind of the reverse of what Augustine had proposed earlier, right? And there are some good reasons for that. There are people who don't like that theory because they don't like imagining what Luke has to do to Matthew to get the Gospel of Luke. In other words, Luke has to pick apart the Sermon on the Mount and redistribute it in lots of other places if we get Luke after Matthew. And so there are people who propose that actually there is a whole other source that we don't even have access to anymore, and they named it something. They, they named it Source, except they were German, so they called it Kvela instead, and so now we abbreviate it. Kvela in German starts with a Q, so we abbreviate it Q. Q does not exist. Q is a hypothetical source that we have invented to explain all of the stuff that Matthew and Luke have in common. Remember all that stuff that was at the bottom of the graph that was right here where Matthew and Luke share it, but Mark doesn't have it? We want to explain where did they get their material that they have that they didn't get from Mark. And one possibility is they got it from this other source, kind of like the suggestion that we had earlier. Maybe there's a third source that we don't have access to anymore. So scholars are kind of split into these two camps. Uh, in terms of whether there was some other source that we don't have anymore that Matthew and Luke had access to, or whether we don't need to invent another source and we just have all three sources right here. We're not going to go into that. It doesn't make any, any difference, I think, for what we're doing right now. All right, let me give you a payoff, and then we'll call it a night. Why does this matter, right? So you might be asking yourself, okay, great, we figured out that Mark is first, and then Matthew, and then, you know, who knows. But what do, what do I care, right? What, does that change how I read the Gospels in any way? And I would say it can. And here's how it can. When you know which Gospel came first and which Gospel used that Gospel as a source, and you notice differences between them in parallel passages, that can tell you something about what one of the Gospel writers cares about. It can tell you what they're emphasizing. So... Here I have in front of you the calling of Levi or sometimes the calling of Matthew, depending on which gospel you read. And what I want you to do, right, so this is a synopsis. I realize it's a little bit small, but maybe you can read it. And especially if you learn how to read these, as you'll see in a second. What I want you to do is look at this and you tell me, what does Matthew have that's different from Mark and Luke? So Matthew has something special here that Mark and Luke do not have. What is it? Yeah, that was it. Someone said it, I think. 
Yes, very good. Verse 13 in Matthew, way down at the bottom here, and I've, I've zoomed in. Sorry, my laser there is. So way down at the bottom, I've zoomed in for you so you can see it bigger. So this is that same thing, but just zoomed in at the bottom. All right, and let me just go back here. This is a quick clue for you now. If you know how to read these synopses and if it's written well, what do you notice right there? Well, there's this giant missing spot, right? So that's your clue uh, for what's different and what's the same. What does Matthew have? So this is the calling of Levi or the calling. He's called Matthew and Matthew, but he's called Levi and Mark and Luke. But it seems to be the same guy. He's a tax collector. Jesus goes and eats with the tax collectors. The Pharisees don't like this or these particular Pharisees. And they say, hey, why is your teacher eating with these sinners, right? With these tax, these, these Roman collaborators, right? We don't like these people. Real you know, Jews, good, good Torah-following Jews, they can't collaborate with the Romans and they can't associate with these people. And so Jesus... Here's this, and he says in all three Gospels, right? So right here at kind of verse 12 in Mark. In all three Gospels, those who are well have no need of a physician, but it's those who are sick. And then in all three Gospels, he says, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. But only Matthew has this extra line. And what does Matthew say? Matthew also has Jesus say, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's a... Very good. That's a quotation of something from the Old Testament. Anybody know what it's from? Isaiah. Not Isaiah. Great grass, because the bulk of the New Testament quotations from the Old Testament are from Isaiah. So that was a good one. But it's not Isaiah. All right. Someone's Bible might have it, right? It's, I'll give it to you. It's Hosea. Hosea. You were, you were, it rhymes, right? There you go. Uh, so Hosea, it's Hosea 6.6. Hosea 6.6. Now, why does this matter to Matthew and why does this matter to us? Because what this means is, if we're right about our order, Matthew had access to Mark. And as Matthew is using this story of Mark and reading through Mark and saying, okay, this is a good one, I want to keep this one in, but what I'm going to do is add one extra line to it. One more thing that I want my audience to understand and appreciate, and it's go and learn what this means, that the the core of Jesus' teaching, in a sense, can be... Uh, encapsulated in this phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, maybe we'd say, okay, no big deal. Matthew adds an extra line. But then we get, that was chapter 9 of Matthew. Then we get to Matthew chapter 12. And now you know how to read these things, right? So I'm going to ask you, what does Matthew have that nobody else has? What's different? Well, it should be pretty obvious for you, right? Yeah, it's this giant thing here. Um, This is a Sabbath controversy. This is when the disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath. And, and according to certain um, interpretations of Sabbath, that would be considered work. You can't pluck that grain. According to other interpretations, that's not work at all. And so, again, the Pharisees get upset with Jesus and they say, you can't do that. Your disciples can't pluck grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus gives them all sorts of examples of why, actually, this is okay. And you have been misconstruing what it is that the Sabbath is. And then I'll zoom in again for you so you can see it bigger. He says the same thing in all the Gospels, more or less, except... In Matthew, we get this one added phrase. Don't you know? It talks about what the priests do in the Sabbath. But then verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Again, he quotes it again, right? What is Jesus saying? He said, if you guys had done your homework, right? Like I told you to in chapter 9 and gone and read your Bibles, then what you would have known is what God is all about is mercy, not sacrifice. Not that God doesn't want the sacrifice, but God wants the mercy so much more. 
And then when you begin to look at the big picture in the Gospel of Matthew, and you think of maybe the Sermon on the Mount, right, where after the Beatitudes, one of the first things that Jesus says is, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, what have I come to do? I've come to fulfill, right? That what Jesus is trying to do is help them appreciate what the core of the law and the prophets is supposed to be. And when you know that, when you know that Matthew has access to Mark, but then in retelling Mark's story, he adds these particular lines, suddenly you get this deep insight into what Matthew cares about and what Matthew is trying to convey to Matthew's audience. Right? That this is an audience that needs to hear what true discipleship, what true following Jesus is, that it's about mercy and not just sacrifice. It's about fulfilling the law and not just the letter of the law. And you see that theme pop up all over the place in Matthew, and it helps you see it when you know that Matthew had access to Mark, right? So there's a payoff for you of why any of this would matter. All right, now I have one thing to to show you or give you. I knew I'd run out of time for this, so it's your homework instead. Uh, But you don't even have to take a picture because I have 100 handouts for it right here for you. So if you care enough, right, and you want to, at the very end, come on up and grab one of these, and we'll talk about this at the end. It's another passage where I think there's a significant payoff where if you understand the order of the Gospels and how they were written, and you, then you kind of work through the way that Luke presents his Jesus being rejected at Nazareth, you learn something about what Luke thinks the Gospel is all about that's really neat, but we don't have time to go through it. So I'll give that to you if you want. Um, and then I'll, I'll leave you with this question that we won't answer together, but that I want you to, to be asking. <laughs> how, how does this... How does this change how you read the Gospels? When you think through the Gospels and the idea that they had access to each other's written sources, how does this affect how you now go and read them? And how will that change in your own personal study? All right, that uh, is where we are. uh, And I've gone a little bit... Yeah, I've gone a little bit late. So let's do one question, then I should let you go. But I'll stand up here and we can um, uh, answer, answer more questions when we need to. Yeah. Yeah. That is certainly a possibility in the sense of Luke having less like tradition within the Old Testament, but uh, almost certainly all of the gospel writers did have access to some part of the Old Testament. Now, the question is, did they have access to written portions of the Old Testament? Did they have access to it in terms of oral tradition, what they had heard in synagogue or on Sabbath or something like that? Um, but you're right. You're right to, to ask those kinds of questions. What access did which gospel writer have and how did that affect how they wrote in terms of what they cite and so forth? Yeah, so that's great. I will right, we'll do one more quick one and then we, and we should... Yeah. Absolutely. To emphasize that kind of stuff. Yeah, very good. All right. Uh, are we going to close it up? Yeah, please. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.